Amen. So glad you're with us. You can grab a seat, as you're already doing. <laughs> uh, we're going to be in Psalm chapter, Psalm 20, Psalm chapter 20 today. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way there. If not, please don't panic. We'll have the verses on the screen. And just a heads up, I think I set a personal record for um, verses in a sermon. So you don't have to flip, tap, just, uh, you know, watch the screen. If you pull up Psalm 20, that's our main text for the day. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope. We're thrilled that you're with us. And we've been doing a sermon series on the Psalms. And if you're like me, Psalms can seem, um, clunky is not the right word, uh, forbidding. There's just, there's a ton of them, 150 of them. And you're supposed to be able to use them for your life. You're supposed to be able to find in them, not just meaning, but meaning that leads to growth. You're supposed to find in them something profound. And often when I read them, I think, okay, there's stuff here. But I don't know how often, um, before maybe the last year or two, I don't know how often a certain situation would call to mind a specific psalm. I don't know how often my brain was tuned to the Psalms. And often, I think most people, even in the church, we treat the Psalms without really understanding the value that they have. There's something like, we talked about this, I mean, there's an illustration I used in previous weeks, but it's something like an elderly person, and you get them a smartphone, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to change your life. You can do literally anything from this phone. And they can't even figure out how to do the phone part of it. They're just excited that when they open it up, they can turn on the flashlight. That's all they want. They just want the flashlight. And you're like, no, 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 no. This can, you can call people. You can access the untold uh, power of the Internet just from this one device. They're literally apt for anything you could possibly want to do. And they're like, okay, great. But that flashlight works. Yeah, yeah, the flashlight definitely works. Okay. That's kind of how most people are with the Psalms. This book of Psalms can touch on the entirety of the human experience and it can tap into untold wealth that God has for you. And most of the time we just say, they're pretty, right? Psalm 23, I think I know that one. And then we just keep moving. Well, I thought, what is a test case? Something that, that God has used the Psalm to do in my life over the last couple of weeks that I can share with you and hopefully Maybe give you an example, a, a teaser for why the psalm should be something that's a bigger part of your life. I started to feel a great deal of anxiety. Some specific situations came up in my life, anxiety resulted, and I was trying to find a way to make that painful emotion of anxiety go away. Jesus says that we shouldn't be anxious. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not supposed to stay anxious. It can happen, I can have that emotion, but that emotion should tell me of a place where I need to apply God's promises and have faith and watch as that anxiety shrinks. And I was having anxiety, and I was having a hard time getting that anxiety to go. So I just started to think, all right, here's a verse that I know about anxiety. It's something like casting your cares upon him because he cares for you. And I didn't know exactly where it was. I had to Google it. It's in First Peter. In First Peter 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
Early on, I was praying this verse, cast cast my anxieties on you, Father, because you care for me. And I was thinking about his care for me and trying to give him my anxieties, but it wasn't really landing. I think I was trying to do it like a magic formula somehow. Michael Scott just declaring bankruptcy. Like I, I thought that somehow just saying the words, having the thoughts would make a difference, but there's medicine here. There's a second part to that, which is your anxieties shrink as your humility increases. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. At the right time, he's going to lift you up. Casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If I'm big in my own estimation, my worries and my troubles are even bigger, and God becomes smaller. Well, I'm going to give him my worries, my troubles. He's not really big enough for them. I need something that will train my mind to think about God how I should. Will train my mind to teach me to think about me how I should. And there's medicine in the Psalms that they had that we don't. And yet, through the Psalms, we can access that medicine and we can watch as it treats, as it somehow solves our anxiety. So, this is a test case. This is the way the psalm impacts us. But in Psalm 20, there's something going on here that if we can start to just drink it in, if we can start to see it the way that they saw it, not only the way that they saw it looking forward through this psalm to someone like David that would come, but looking back through Christ, through David to Psalm 20, we can see something that really will, I think, pull apart your anxiety as God pulled apart mine over the last two weeks. I'll have another fit. It'll come again, but I I need to apply this medicine and see it healed. Let's read. Psalm 20 says, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord's, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven and with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Now, if you read through that psalm and you're not really thinking about it too heavily, there's just a part of you that hopes that by reading scripture, there will be some kind of just sort of magical attainment of God's grace. I did what he wanted, now maybe he'll do something for me. But the psalms don't always work that way. In fact, you read them and you're gaining things from them. God's actually teaching you things through them. So it's not just an exercise in obedience. It's actually an exercise in thinking. As you're reading this psalm, what is it saying and who is it saying it to? It may seem like this is a mother just praying for her son, but it's actually a group of people, a congregation, even a nation, praying that, speaking a blessing on their king before God. How do we see that? Well, he's talking about the the person who wrote this psalm, the psalmist, is saying over and over again, may the Lord bless you. So he's praying for God to bless someone. 
But who is it that he's talking about? He says, may we shout for joy over your salvation. So he's not just praying for himself. He's not just praying for like a kid or a family member or something. He's praying for someone. In verse 6 it says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Oh, there we go. He's praying for God's anointed. Who's God's anointed? Well, in the Old Testament, that was the king. Where Samuel comes and he breaks and he anoints the head of David and makes him the new king. God's going to answer that anointed one from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. And then in that last verse, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Some of the reason that we have a hard time even understanding this psalm is it is so contrary to our frame of mind to have a king. We've never had a king. We don't really even know what it's like to have a king, to have a culture that has a king. And yet, these people, the ones who are singing this psalm, were singing to God to protect the king. For them, they had a very developed concept of what a king was. A king was their protection. It was the king's job to hold the border secure. It was the king's job to make sure that justice was administered throughout the realm. So you're protected from people outside your country coming in, but you're also protected within your country from the other people in it. That the king's job was to provide for the people. That he would make sure that everybody had what they needed, that the the farmers had what they needed, that the manufacturing had what they needed, that the people would all be fed. It was the king's job to represent that nation to the world. The king was not just protection or provision, but the king was also the picture of that nation to the world. They would surround that king in majesty. Because in anointing that king and blessing that king, but in putting on that king those those jewels that crown the purple, they were saying to the world, look at the greatness of our nation as represented by our king. So they're praying for the king. They're not just praying for this guy that they admire. They're praying for their people. They're praying for their nation. They're praying for their very lives and the lives of their posterity. And as you go into Scripture and see that the nation of Israel is praying for their king, you see that there's something even more. Because the king being the protector, the king being the provider, the king being the picture, that was true of every nation in the world at the time. But in Israel it goes even further because their king was the king of the nation that God had promised to use to establish a blessing for all the nations, all the families of the earth. You go into the Bible. In Genesis, you have a creation story, and before too long, you get to this guy, Abraham, that mess of Babel, that all these people are being shinned away from each other, that they all have different languages, and yet God plucks up Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to give you a nation, I'm going to give you a family, I'm going to give you a name, and through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Abraham has has Isaac. Isaac inherits that promise. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob inherits that promise. Jacob has 12 sons, one of them being Joseph. All kinds of crazy stuff happens, but these 12 end up in Egypt and having lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of kids until eventually Israel is this great nation that Moses leads out. They go out, and you may have heard that story where they go through the Red Sea and through the wilderness before eventually making it into the promised land. And in that promised land, you have a succession of leaders called the judges. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. The judges weren't prophets and they weren't kings. They were really just sort of saviors. 
They would come along because the people had gotten so far from God that the punishment of God would rain down on them and somebody would have to come and pull them out of their mess. So things were just spiraling down and down and down, even in the promised land. Until you get a king. And that first king, even, this Saul guy, was a joker. He was terrible. And then you get David. And King David was this perfect, not perfect, compared to these others, though, this excellent king. And the people would pray for their king, and they're praying for their king from David on, not just praying for David, but all the sons of David who would be the kings of Judah and Israel after him, praying that they would be faithful, that God would bless them, praying and shouting for joy over the the relationship they saw between God and their king. Verse 5, in the name of our God, we set up our banners May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now, this isn't a political sermon. The goal isn't for you guys to try and vote in a king of some kind. Uh, We want to pray for our leaders. God commands us to do that. Romans 13 is a good thing for you to read because it tells us how we're supposed to be in submission to the leaders that God's put in place. But this is totally different. It's talking about a king here in a totally different way. And this, this way of of understanding the history of the kings of Israel helps us to see what they meant by king and what we need to see when we think about a king. In the Psalms, it's talking about David all the time. And this king, David, and the fulfillment of a promise made, not only to Abraham to bless all the nations of the world through him, but a promise made to David. See, David became very successful. He had, he had secured the borders of Israel after vastly expanding the borders of Israel. The people were protected. The people were provided for. And this picture, the majesty of King David, as he sat in his hall, as he sat in his grand palace, he had this crushing guilt because he thought, here I sit in this beautiful palace, and yet the presence of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant is still in a tent. It's still in the tabernacle. I want to build a temple for God. So he walks up to God, he's praying, he's thinking about how he wants to do this, and he tells Nathan the prophet, listen, Nathan, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan says, great, go for it. And God tells Nathan, no, no, no. God has David sort of slow down a minute and just sort of pats David on the head and says, if I needed a house, do you think I would talk to you? You're going to build me a temple? Listen, we're going to take care of that. I'll do that in my time, my way. But but you don't need to provide for me, David. In fact, listen to this promise I'm going to make to you. In 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David and says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to rise, raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house forever. Uh, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house, verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that promise, you can understand how that would just really settle in the minds of the people the, the, the necessity of a king and a good king. Their prayers for and hope for a king, that God's going to use the king 
to establish for us a nation that will last forever. Who would that king be? Well, Jesus. The reason that we're spending so much time thinking about David is because you have to understand the model that the people who are reading Psalm 20 saw so that when you see Jesus and you put him into that model, you can see how he's so much greater than even they expected. In Matthew 1.1, it says that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As you read through the book of Matthew, it says over and over and over again, he has all these interesting groups of people saying repeatedly, son of David. He's not just genetically in the line of David. They're calling him the son of David, meaning inheritor of this promise. So much so that the leaders are concerned about the crowds of people making this connection between David and Jesus, and they start to question Jesus. Eventually, Jesus responds to their questions not only by answering them fully, but he gives them a question. Matthew 22, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, Bible trivia, they were quick to answer. They said to him, Son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Yeah, I'm sure. He took the Pharisees to task on their understanding of the Old Testament. That's like dunking on Michael Jordan. He took the one who was greatest at the thing that they did and showed them that they didn't even understand the own texts that they had memorized and were so proud of their knowledge about. He showed them in Psalm 110. That's what he's quoting from. How David says, the Lord said to my Lord. So God said to the one that I call Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, your, put your enemies under your feet. He's saying that he understands that David understood that there was a greater one to come. That Jesus is that king who would establish his throne. How do we put all this together? Uh, I hope you'll forgive me for all this background knowledge, but you have to get it because if you don't, you can never access our grounds for our humility. We have to get humble if our anxieties are going to go down. And that humility is going to come from seeing the king that God has given us in Jesus. You go back to Psalm 20 and it's saying over and over again, it's praying for this king so fully. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now the Lord saves his anointed. He's going to answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What are they saying? They are giving up a very American perspective and accepting instead a very biblical perspective. Now, those are not contrary to each other, but the American says, I'm the king of me. In this world that I live in, my vote counts like everybody else's, and I rule me. If I don't like the way that the rulers are ruling, then I can vote them out whether that's true or not. You have that idea. We have that perspective. And yet the Christian says, I bow the knee every day to a king, to a king 
a king that is greater than me. You can't live as a Christian for 10 minutes without realizing that he is greater than you. That you do have a king and that you are not that king. Then you start to ask yourself, you start to look forward and see, does this king have the standing before God that I need? Is he able to stand before God and achieve what I need? And Psalm 20 addresses that same thing. It says in verse 3, May he remember all your sacrifices and regard with favor your burnt... Uh, remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Jesus is able to stand before God because he has achieved favor before God in a way that no other king has or can. I give up my kinghood, I put it on Jesus because I can't stand before God because of my sin. We talked about this last week, how the kings would have to make sacrifices before God and that those sacrifices were merely placeholders and pictures for a greater sacrifice that was to come. Jesus could stand before God as perfect. And we see this again in the book of Matthew. In the beginning of Matthew, when Jesus comes up out of the water from his baptism, God says, this is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. And we go, wow. Fantastic. Our king is able to stand before God. He is a good king who's accepted by our good God. And so he's going to be able to care for us well because God's going to work through him perfectly. And yet, by the time you get to the end of the book of Matthew, this one who is well-pleasing to the Lord is now on a cross. And he is shouting from that cross in his death agony, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? crying out again with a loud voice before he gives up his spirit. So is this guy pleasing to God or not? Is this, guy, is this guy able to stand before God on our account or not? Well, we know that he was resurrected, that his sacrifice was accepted. How do we understand that? Hebrews 9 helps us so well when it says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the blood of bulls and goats, goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So we have this king who was not making sacrifices, hoping that he could somehow please God, but he was able to perfectly live and then give himself as a sacrifice. That he could now stand before God, perfect, but he could also take his perfect innocence and put it on us. That this king was able to protect us and provide for us, not because he made Israel into a political nation that took out Rome, but because he took the people of God, even those who rebelled against God, and made a way for them to be forgiven and accepted again by God. And so, I can either live before God on my own merits, being my own king, or I can stand before God with Jesus as my king, hopefully being accepted because of the sacrifice that Jesus made on my behalf. The question is, are you going to be proud or are you going to be humble? The humble one gets happy 
You can be proud, but that's where your anxiety is. If you will just let that down, if you'll just set that down and accept Jesus as your king, then that humility is going to result in being happy. Being happy because you've been set free, you've been released. All that anxiety can just slough off. You are now able to have faith like a child. The Psalms celebrate this emotion too when it says in Psalm 127, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In vain that you rise up early and go late to bed. Eating the bread of anxious toil, for God gives to his beloved sleep. If I try to say, I'm going to fix my problems, I'm going to wake up early, I'm going to stay up late, I'm going to work hard. That anxious toil that you go about, it's not going to save you. Unless the Lord watches the house, they'll watch in vain. No, 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 no. If I can just trust Him, I'm still going to work. We'll talk about that in a second, but I'm going to work as one who trusts that he's going to do his job and glory on high, I get to participate in some way in his work. I reject the bread of anxious toil and I accept from his hand rest. Oh, sorry. Microphone's low. Rest. That's the doctrine of our salvation. This guy, F.F. F. Bruce, as he's reading through Romans, he said, when salvation is grasped, it can be seen that we have no ground for self-congratulation. As we see, as we think about, as we contemplate the way of salvation, it is only by grace, sola gratia, only by faith, sola fide, and only for God's glory. If you can understand that, then you can be humble. But being humble, you'll receive happiness. And yet, you don't receive um, a break. <laughs> I think a lot of people understand grace-based salvation to mean that we don't have to do anything, that we can just chill. But can I tell you that if you will humble yourself, if you will get happy, you're also going to get busy. One pastor said it really well. He said, I sleep well. And he said that after talking about what we've just talked about, about Jesus being king, and that's not. He said, I sleep well, and then he said, I don't sleep much, but I do sleep well. And what he meant was, when it's finally time to lay my head down, knowing that God does give his beloved rest, I do sleep well. And yet, I'm now a participant in his kingdom. The work that we have to do, that we get to do in his kingdom is so infinitely great that, yeah, I've got a lot to do. You have a lot to do to do. We pray with the Father. We say, Holy Lord, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Being part of his kingdom, you're now one of his envoys, one of his ambassadors. You live every day looking out on a world that has rejected God, and you're saying, I'm going to find ways to show God's glory to these people. I'm going to serve them and sacrifice for them with the kind of love that I saw Jesus show on me, for me. I'm going to pray with tears. I'm going to, I'm going to fight hard to show what can happen as God changes people.
I am going to plant churches and I am going to make disciples even with all this COVID stuff. I am going to care for my family and I am going to figure out how to provide because I'm trusting God with the big stuff and me with the stuff he's given me. I'm going to work as hard as though he's not there, trusting him as though he's going to do all of it. And as I do that, man, watch as that joy just bubbles up, as it increases. I'm not, I'm not God I'm a servant, but I am a servant in God's kingdom with unparalleled access to that king. I'm a God, I'm a servant in God's kingdom, and somehow through adoption in Jesus Christ, he has called me not merely a servant, but even a son. Why would I not want that? Why would I not accept that? Why would I not live under that blessing all of my days? Because to do that, I do have to be humble. So let me ask you people. Will you humble yourself? You can't stand before God on your work, on your merit. Not going to work. That allows you to have a name and make a name for yourself, but it will never work. You set up a rival kingdom, that kingdom is going to be crushed by this kingdom. But if you will say now that He is your Lord and He is your God, you're going to watch. You're suddenly going to click into place and enjoy all the pleasures of being His forever. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please make us a humble people so that we can be a happy people and we can be a busy people, not busy with anxious toil, but busy with the work that You have given us, trusting You with the results. Lord, You are too good of a God for us to just get messed up trying to worry about our own name and our own legacy. I pray instead that you would just curse away that sin, help us to repent of it, and to be about your name, your glory, and your work. pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.